little bit got lucky because the environment favored them, never learned the root cause of why they were successful. And so they have really only two choices. I am great or the environment is great. And our society doesn't allow you to say the environment is great because then, you know, you're not being independent, which is a fundamental axiom of being an American, right? Now, when you're not in the US where the value of interdependence is equally as powerful as the value of independence, then there is a little bit more understanding around the environment. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahel Badruddin, and joining us today is Rudy Carson, a seasoned technology investor and entrepreneur for over 30 years, and previously the founder and CEO of Connexa, which eventually sold to IBM for $1.3 billion. Rudy, it's exciting to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Sahel. I always feel like you should be on Shark Tank, Rudy. <laughs> nah, I, I'm, too, I'm too much of a commerdigen to be on, Star, on Shark Tank. Let's start by talking about your story. You grew up in Kenya, stayed a little bit in London, then you moved to the States, I believe. What got you interested in uh, investing in entrepreneurship? Uh, so I was in Canada for a while there, and I had a choice after... Okay, so let me back up a second. I've started a bunch of companies in my life, most of which have been flaming failures. I got lucky with Connexa, made a little bit of money on that. I had a choice to kind of continue working for larger companies. I looked at kind of CEO roles in Fortune 500 companies and realized that I really enjoyed early stage, but I didn't have the age, the vigor, the stamina to do my own startups anymore. So I said, I might as well help others. And so we started Carlani Capital and we invest in early stage. You said that it's, it's a great time to start a business in a crisis. Why? Uh, because you're not hampered by the behaviors, the environment, and the kind of industry dogma that exists prior to a crisis. Okay. And you have the not only the wherewithal, but you have the freshness of looking at the world with a fresh set of eyes. And therefore, I believe that companies that start out now will do exceptionally well because they will be more attuned to the modern, or I should say not the modern, but they will be more attuned to the post-crisis world than existing companies in the pre-crisis world. Okay. Any other pieces of advice you would give to someone who does want to start a business at this time? I'm not in the advice business. Uh, advice is like opinions. Everyone has a navel. Context is really important when you're talking to people. Sure, absolutely. Oh. And what's happening with their particular business agreed. Yeah. And it's, you know, starting a business is not, in my mind, a job for determining a it's not an engineering function. It's more of an artistic function. Fascinating. So, Interesting. So it's the nuances, the, the colors, the hues are so different from startup to startup mm. that 
it's hard for me to say to anyone, well, these are the three things you need to do. And I'm not kind of prescriptive in that area. Let's shift more towards just the future and work in general. You did a TEDx talk where you talked about the future of work is not jobs, right? And it's about meaningful work and providing meaningful work because that's what is really going to be, that's really going to stay with us throughout our kind of existence. Do you see that happening more? And then what can we do to kind of change that? I think one of the things you mentioned is universal basic income is a critical factor. Where are we kind of at with that? Oh, you've done a lot of research on your guests prior to the <laughs> podcast. I compliment you and commend you for that. Thank you. I would say, let's take a step back. The whole notion of work is something that has been with humanity since we were hunter-gatherers. The whole idea of a job is something that has only existed since the 17th century. In fact, I think the word job entered into the dictionary in 1642 or some date like that. Right. We as a species are conditioned to work and we did work for the longest time for survival. Mm -hmm. So we would work primarily to find food, have safety, so that we could basically, as a species, survive and procreate. Then we had the luxury of the industry revolution, which shifted work from being purely around subsistence and survival, and just enough so that we were old enough so we could procreate and then look after our kids and then die. Mm -hmm. That paradigm kind of changed for human beings uh, probably about two, 200 years ago plus. And so we as humans need to have a sense of community. We are social beings and we need to have a sense of service. We have to, we have to, we have to acknowledge something bigger than ourselves. We've created that mental construct for ourselves as the species has evolved. So when I say meaningful work, for a majority of people, there is this internal yearning for greatness. Some people refer to it as the ego, some people refer to it as pride, but no matter how you express it, it's an internal yearning to do something different or something great or something meaningful to people around you, either your loved ones, or it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's your definition of your community and your world. And so that's what I mean when I say meaningful work. And then the notion of universal basic income is to break the whole idea of entitlements. If you think about the US, and I don't know what the numbers are today, but I think in our budget, we have something like $2 trillion for entitlements. This was back in 2018, I haven't seen the 2019 number, of which 600 billion is the cost of administering those entitlements. So if you take healthcare as an entitlement, uh, the insurance companies are the administrators of that entitlement, and they pull a lot out of the economy and they don't add to the efficiency of the economy. They just add for the organization 
of transferring those funds from the source of the funds to the beneficiary. So the best way to break the back of entitlement while at the same time allowing humanity to move forward, I believe the solution lies in universal basic income. And in effect, this crisis is proving that that's what we're doing, right? We're saying we're going to provide for, the government's going to provide for its citizens in either form of unemployment insurance or whatever the case might be, but it's a direct stimulus, whatever the number was, 1200 bucks in this case, right. uh, to, to, to people. So we are going to get there ultimately. I just am not sure the form in which we'll get there, whether we'll give services where we'll say, just like air and water is free for all intents and purposes, at least in the U.S., will access to information. So will Wi-Fi be free or will access to the internet be free or whether it might be uh, places you can live in, that there is dorms that are built. I, again, I have no clarity on how it's going to happen, but I believe that as a, as a country and as a species, we'll move to an area of greater compassion. That's good to hear. And then if we talk about the future economy in general, some predict, you know, AI and this gig economy is going to be a tremendous change in how things move forward. And you're in the tech space. What are your thoughts there? Well, artificial intelligence is really a platform to allow narrow and deep understanding that humans basically have if you're an expert in the field. So if you think about... AI, if you replace it, I forget who I heard this from, which I thought was really apropos. If you replace AI with cheap prediction, mm -hmm. that's what AI basically is. It gives you the ability to predict behavior at a very low cost. If you take IBM Watson, the AI there was unable to be an oncologist assistant, but it foundationally could be Jeopardy, it could be the Jeopardy King, or its predecessor could win a chess match. Well, in, in the world of rules, AI wins. Mm. But once you get out of the world of rules, like in oncology, the, the physicians still are in the practice of not even having a routine of the questions that are asked. The data changes, because we, understand the disease, but we don't understand it well enough to lick it. Once we understand how to lick it, then AI would become extremely effective in that. But right now, it's more of AI-human collaboration. And the more complex a problem, the more the collaboration will be needed. But intelligence, artificial intelligence, will create a whole new genre of jobs. Now, there are the doomsayers that say basically that AI will kill the economic engine of the human, and therefore there'll be kind of two classes of humans, the ones that have AI and are enhanced accordingly and have the resources for it, and then the rest of humanity that has no economic value and will become either members of a zoo or just kind of naturally die out or get killed or whatever. And then there's another school that basically says that as AI comes in, it's going to enhance all of humanity 
not, albeit not at the same speed, but we'll all be beneficiaries of it. Uh, the jury's out on that. I, I don't have a I don't have a point of view on which one of those two scenarios will materialize. What I've learned is that in humanity's history, the extremes rarely become the outcomes. The outcomes are generally somewhere in a blended way of two extreme positions. And then are there perhaps limitations to AI that will always be there no matter how much technological progress we get anyways? It's, it's hard to give. I, I, what I've learned is never say never. So right now we are thinking of technology in the current architecture and in the current platform and in the current tools. But quantum computing, which I think there's only maybe about 500 people on this planet that really understand what that is and they still don't understand how, they just know it works. If that comes in, uh, the, the equation could get changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would ever say that AI on its own will never be able to surpass humanity because we might have computing power that will allow for the complexity of, of the world as we see it today. You want to talk a little bit more about you and your journey. Were there times you felt personally in the multiple businesses you've mentioned and connects as well, where you felt that you had a bit of the imposter syndrome and where you, know, you, weren't, you felt you weren't skilled enough or talented enough for the position you're in? And then how did you kind of get past that? I am one of those people that's blessed with a false sense of confidence. My issue was more around fear and anxiety rather than insecurity. So there, you know, everyone's got their own battles to fight. Mine was more around overcoming fear. And that probably stems from the fact that I'm an immigrant and, you know, most immigrants are broke and you don't have enough money for food and all those other things. I, I rarely felt the impost, imposter syndrome, as you put it, because I just believed that I had the resilience or the mental capacity to be able to solve whatever issue was presented to me. Now, that didn't mean that I, had, I was a master of all the skills, but I had enough skills under my belt that I would be able to understand what I didn't know and then rapidly figure out a way to make sure I understood that. And then even today, what, what gets you up in the morning? I guess lack of tiredness. Lack of tiredness. <laughs> is there something, is there a dream you're kind of hoping for or trying to accomplish in the next five years? The, you know, all of us have our games that we play, right? Right. When we all kind of go through life trying to maximize certain things, whether we, I think whether we realize it or not, we have this belief system in our head that kind of matches to our desires and we, 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 we try and match the two, right? So... Mm -hmm. I'm an artist, I don't, I'm not trying to maximize my income. What I'm trying to do is maximize my downloads on my, or my followers, and then I'll figure out how to make more money, whatever it is. And I think where I am at now is I'm in an extremely fortunate place. I have an abundance of time, an abundance of resources, an abundance of love, an abundance of relationships. And so I'm playing the game of maximizing joy 
And so the way I get joy now is being involved in companies that I believe that can help a billion people find the right job like Phenom or reduce financial literacy or, or increase financial literacy amongst the financially excluded or the working poor or the unprotected, whatever language you want to use to describe it, or do desalination at a cost point that can maybe fill up the aquifers of the Sahara. You know, it's those kinds of things where I tend to spend most of my mind share on. What uh, lessons or conclusions have you, can you share with us from that kind of mindset? Is it, do you find that when you have the abundance, because it's, we all have the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? In some sense, is that we're trying to, you know, make our ends meet. We're trying to have fulfillment in our relationships. We're trying to have fulfillment in our day-to-day work. But in, in a trying to give back and trying to get joy from that, and when you have the, the basic necessities and the abundance of relationships and wealth and time, what, what do you struggle with? And then what do, you, what do you also, can you share that, the lessons from that perhaps? You've used the phrase giving back a few times. I'm not in the business of giving back because if you're giving back, you're really basically saying there is a giver and a beneficiary, mm-hmm. which puts the giver in a position of power and the beneficiary in a, in a position of acceptance. And that, that to me is kind of almost an arrogant way of looking at it. It's like, I am in the business of serving. If, if I really break it down, it's all about service. It's not about giving back. It's not about helping anyone. It's just simply pure and simple service. So that's the place I'm in my life, right? But again, I have a lot of advantages and I have a lot of abundance. So I have the luxury of thinking about it that way. Yes. If I, if I ever went to down the path of I'm giving back, then I'm basically doing something that I don't want to do, which is inflate my ego. Mm. Because one of the things I've realized is one of the challenges I face is I have a massive ego wrapped in a veneer of humility. Mm. And so it tends to pierce itself. And when I'm speaking from my ego, those are the days where I'm not as happy with myself. So I'd rather be speaking from a place of service or servitude. To me, those words are more akin to the way my mind works than the language of kind of dominance and subserviency. Interesting. No, I think that's beautifully said. And so if you say, what are the lessons that I'm learning because I haven't learned them all, right? Because once again, you're never, I, I don't view myself as an expert. I view myself as a student. So when you're in that mode, there is constant learning. So a stress factor, a stress area might be frustration with myself at the speed at which I'm absorbing new information. And so I'm trying to figure out ways in which I can be more efficient in pattern recognition on a problem that I'm trying to solve. But if you say, what are your 
life problems. Well, I'm in a stage where I procreated. I mean, I have kids and the kids have kids now. So it's not like I have these weightier issues that people in their 20s and 30s have, right? I'm in the final, call it 30% of my life, 20%, 40%, depending on when, when I go. So I am in a space where I can be selfish to my own journey while my selfishness doesn't create a cost to society. And so I'm in a really good place. If you looked back 30 years ago, where you're sitting now, did you, did you think you would be in the position you were sitting in around right Hell now? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> years ago, I was battling through my first bankruptcy. I didn't know if I could survive. Yeah. yeah it's, no. in the, I think one of the things they say is that when you, when you have bad, every phase of life, right, whether good or bad, passes. And uh, when you're in the bad, you should be patient. And then when you're in the good, you should, you know, enjoy it to the best of your ability. And, but I think that when you're in a bankruptcy, like you mentioned, it's really hard to kind of, you know, that stress and that, you know, that adrenaline is, is it's severe. So how did you deal with it? Uh, so, I mean, there's two, there's two components in what you're saying, right? Because you yes. say, well, everything's cyclical. So yes. just go through whatever you consider the bad times because it'll turn. Well, the people that say that are the people that lived through the bad time, right? The people that are die, died and are in the grave, they don't have a chance to give their story. So I'm not sure it's an accurate narrative. Interesting. Because all the people that died, you don't hear their story, right? You only hear the stories of the people that overcome it. And what are they gonna say? Are they gonna say, oh, it's because I was smarter than everybody else? And they don't even know that. So they give a vanilla answer like, do I just hang in there? And I'm not sure that's the right answer because to really get the right framework to think about it, you're going to spend more time with the people that didn't make it through, that the people have the nervous break, breakdown, that the people that turn to criminals are now, now kind of languishing in a jail. Some of those people went through that and had no source but to say, I'm going to steal. And they stole and they got caught and they got separated from their families. I mean, you don't know the full range of outcomes. You only know the range of outcomes that of, of the ones that successfully made the transition. And then they're the ones that kind of give the, the pablum for the mind, which is, oh, hang on a second. Don't worry about it. You'll be able to get out on the other side. I'm not sure that's true. So now to answer the second part of the question, how do I cope with stress and what do I do? Yes. Uh, it's, it's a pretty regular formula that's been with me for a very long time. It's regular meditation, prayers, introspection, whatever phrase, you, mindfulness, whatever phrase you wish to use for yourself, which is a process of quietening the mind a deep sense of gratitude. So I never go to sleep without saying the three things I'm grateful for that happened to me today. And, I, and it's got to be specific. I can't just say, oh, my wife, Sharon, whom, you know, we started dating when we were 17 and the best of friends, and I'm glad she's alive. Like, I mean, that's not the gratitude. It's specifically what happened today. Uh, so the, there's that second step. 
I found out that when I am exercising, it's easier to handle the tough times than when I'm not. And so I've kind of incorporated regular exercise in, in, into, my, uh, into my routine. And then the final piece is journaling. I, I tend to write notes to myself and use that to introspect on. So if I've determined a cause of fear, I just sit and I meditate around that cause and I embrace it and I enlarge it. And I, I think in a sense, I've learned to be kind to myself. And I, I forget who said this, but when you're frustrated, when you're stuck because of frustration, try fascination. So one of the things that I've learned is if I can kind of expand the reason for what's causing me the stress, I might be fascinated with something and then I learn more about it. And so it's a, it's a pretty, I, I think if you talk to most people, they'll have some or all of this routine baked into their lives in some form or the other. And I just am very mindful of making sure that that routine is maintained. Agreed. I believe there are young people in the South Asian and Muslim community who look up to you as a role model. Are there any pieces of, you know, I want to say lessons, but then also just any pieces of, I guess, your life journey you would want to kind of emphasize to them or share with them or a message you'd want to share with them? I would say the lessons of life that I've learned that are really beneficial for me personally are drive your actions through service rather than greed. I drove it through greed and I drove it through service. And ultimately I made a lot of money. I'm not sure what created the wealth, but I found that the quality of the journey was much stronger when I was driven through service. And I was amazed at the way the wealth was then created through the notion of service. So stay really, really focused on waking up in the morning today and saying, who am I going to serve for what reason? I serve my entrepreneurs that I invest in. They're my entrepreneurs because I have chosen to associate with them just as I am their friend. And those relationships have now become friendships. Friendships is really, really important when you're stressed. It's, uh, it's the best antidote from stress. So I guess the second thing would be a calculus that says, who are my friends and how am I serving them? And am I being a good friend to them? The third is be really, think of, it, think of this as a barbell approach. Simultaneously be extremely tender with yourself, so be kind to yourself, while at the same time be really brutal with the facts about yourself. So at an emotional level, be very tender. At a rational level, be very firm. Don't fool yourself with with meaningless data. If your business is going under, don't use hope as a strategy. It rarely works. But if your business fails, don't be unkind to yourself. Be tender with yourself. Learn to understand that you still had the benefit of the experience and maybe there was something environmentally there. Learn to cry and laugh, both equally. Because if you can't 
do both, then you can't do either. I want to talk about customer engagement and engagement before we uh, move to the, before we finish off. They say, you know, like 95, 99%, whatever number of startups, you know, end up failing. And one of the things that Carlani Capital, you emphasize, your team emphasizes, is if it doesn't sell, we don't do it. And you have to craft your narrative around what's essential to your customer and by speaking to them and by relating to them. And you've also written a book on engagement, on how to increase performance, profits through full engagement. I want to talk about more of these concepts of, you know, perhaps psychological safety, if you've heard of it, and the other kind uses this concept of enabling environment. What are the key disparities that people don't understand about engagement and customer engagement, and what are some of the ways that they can improve it? I think it starts with a mindset, right? Which is most people associate a rational component of customers, which is they give me money and I give them a product or service or a blend of products and services. On the other hand, I love my customers because they allow me to do what I want to do. They're the reason that I'm in business. I'm not in business because of my own greatness. I'm in business because my customers allow me margin. And the greater the value I provide, the larger the margin. So I am really grateful to my customers. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't have that emotional connectivity to their customers is what I find. Mm. And so a lot more time is spent on strategy and total addressable market and so on and so forth. And we tend to worship the unicorns, but the unicorn is a mythical creature. It doesn't exist in real life. And so we are really worshiping mythology. Try worshiping your customer because a majority of businesses are not worth a billion. Very, 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 very infinitely small number of them are. So if you're in the business of worshiping a mythological creature, then to a certain extent, your life is a sham. Worship your customer. And engagement is the notion of trying to tease out that emotional connection with the employee as well. There are questions you can ask to measure it. And that definition of engagement has been a debate for almost a century amongst various IO psychologists. And yeah, I've written a book on it. But if you think about it at a rational level, engagement is about discretion. If your customer is engaged, you will get their discretionary income. If your employee is engaged, you will get their discretionary work. However, if you approach engagement with the idea of getting the discretion, then you might end up failing miserably because the recipient of your fake love may figure it out. I often think we need to think about a vision for the future. And I ask this question to many of my guests is, we end up talking about the vision in general terms, but could you name a specific objective perhaps you see the world can achieve, let's say in 25 years, 
and what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help us achieve this vision? I don't have a vision for humanity. Uh, I don't believe I'm smart enough to do that. What I do hope for is that a recognition by humanity that prior to this crisis, we were living in the golden age of humanity. Because if you looked at the data in any metric you wanted to, whether it's life expectancy, quality of life, access to information, individual rights, whatever, you, whatever dimension you wish to measure it on, the last 50 years since the, ad, since the end of the Second World War, I should say more than that now, 70, 80 years since the end of the Second World War, has been a boon in that area. Poverty has reduced dramatically, so on and so forth. Once we get through the crisis, we'll still be in abundant times. It's the notion that we don't believe we have what we need that's causing some of the stress. It's the unmet need rather than the desire. So if the desire is what's causing the stress, then if humanity can figure out a way to mitigate that desire through either changing the needs or through introspection and mindfulness to be aware of the delta between the unmet need and the definition of that unmet need, then humanity itself could enter into this phase of what people call now, the modern word is mindfulness. But to me, it's an awareness and a silence of the mind so that you can be contemplative or you can be introspective about what your needs and wants are. Rudy, this has been really insightful. Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate you doing that. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.